you sad girl study guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia. And as always, I'm sad. This episode is going to be the last in our series of study guides on the Stuarts, even though I wrapped up the actual Stuart monarchs last week with Queen Anne of England, I thought I would close things out with the figure who I would argue is the bridge between the House of Stuart and the House of Hanover, Sophia of Hanover. In history class, Sophia of Hanover probably didn't come up at all because she never ruled in her own name or straight up slaughtered anyone but I think she's still really interesting and she acts as a really great bridge figure. Her study guide has calculus, a messy succession, a broken engagement, and some light bigamy. Let's begin. The woman who one day would be Sophia of Hanover is born October 14th, 1630 at the Wasenhauerhof in The Hague. Apparently, her parents chose the name Sophia for her pretty randomly because by the time she was born, they had run out of relatives to name their kids after, which makes sense given that Sophia was the 12th out of 13 children. Sophia's parents were Elizabeth Stuart, the daughter of James I of England, and Frederick V, the elector of the Palatinate. Elizabeth Stuart and Frederick V are also known in history as the Winter Queen and King of Bohemia. By the time Sophia is born, her parents have been in exile in the Netherlands since 1619 because of the Thirty Years' War, which Frederick definitely had kicked off when he had accepted the throne of Bohemia. I'm not really going to be talking about the Thirty Years' War in this episode. I probably someday will be doing a study guide on the Thirty Years' War, but if I don't get around to it, When Diplomacy Fails is a really good resource to learn more about the Thirty Years' War. What we need to know about the Thirty Years' War for this study guide's purposes is, one, it genuinely is 30 years. This isn't another 100 years war nonsense type thing. And two, it's going to involve the Catholic Habsburgs fighting against a bunch of different Protestant groups in what is modern day Germany. It starts out with the Habsburgs against the Bohemians, and then the Habsburgs against various other Germanic groups, and then briefly Sweden, and then finally France. Like I said, it really does get kicked off when Frederick accepts the throne of Bohemia. He gets pushed out of Bohemia and then the Palatinate by the Habsburgs. And then he, his wife Elizabeth, and their children, including Sophia of Hanover, end up in exile in The Hague. Elizabeth loved The Hague in the Dutch culture, whereas Frederick wasn't so into it. He really did want to reclaim his throne in the Palatinate. Sophia's birth was not a happy time for her family. A few months before she was born, her older brother, Frederick Henry, froze to death slash drowned in a boating accident, and only a few days after her birth, her older sister Charlotte died. This meant that instead of being a time of celebration, her birth was frankly a time of mourning for her family. And things really aren't going to get better. In 1632, the king of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus, starts fighting 
against the Habsburgs. And as it turns out, Gustavus Adolphus is really great at fighting, and he starts pushing the Habsburgs out of modern-day Germany further and further south. Sophia's father, Frederick, joins up with Gustavus Adolphus, and for a hot second, it looks like Frederick might get the Palatinate back. But then, in November 1632, Gustavus Adolphus dies in battle, and what little chance Frederick has of getting his throne back vanishes. Frederick dies of a fever a few weeks later at the end of November 1632, and Sophia never gets to know her father. Instead, she and some of her older siblings will treat her oldest surviving brother, Charles Louis, the future elector of the Palatinate, as a, foggier, as a father figure. After her father's death, Sophia and her other siblings are sent to live in Leiden. Her mother, Elizabeth, isn't that interested in raising children. First of all, Elizabeth has this massive menagerie of animals that she's pretty focused on. Animals, as we all know, are much more fun than children. And more importantly, Elizabeth is trying to renegotiate control of the Palatinate and is caught up in various other diplomatic intrigues. Instead, Sophia and her siblings are mostly going to be raised by her father's ex-governess, who apparently was quite the terrifying figure. Eventually, by the time she's 10, Sophia is going to return to live in the Hague with her mother after her youngest sibling, her brother Gustavus, dies. When Sophia returns to live in the Hague, it's not just going to be her, her siblings, and her mother. Her English Stuart cousins are also going to be in the Netherlands, because by now the English Civil War has kicked off and the English Stuarts are in exile because of said civil war. Meanwhile, Sophia's older brothers are in England fighting for the royalist cause in the Civil War, especially her big brother Rupert, who is a whole other human who I may or may not do a study guide on someday. Yes, Rupert is really interesting, but he's also pretty exhausting. Due to the Civil War and Parliament's refusal to support the Stuart family, Sophia's mother is slowly going to start losing her pension, and pretty soon the family is going to have to deal with a lack of money for basically the first time in their life. Sophia, later on in her memoirs that she writes when she's in her 50s, says that the family ate better than Cleopatra because literally the only thing they had to eat were Elizabeth's jewels. Yes, they are no longer as wealthy as they once were, but let's remember that Sophia and her family are still members of European nobility. Their lives are quite a bit easier than probably 98% of the European population. As the Civil War heats up, Sophia starts to get closer and closer to one of her cousins, Prince Charles of England, the future Charles II. Around 1648-1649, Prince Charles starts courting Sophia and asks her to marry him. This relationship goes extremely badly because over the course of his proposal, Charles is like, yeah, you're almost as hot as my current mistress, which is exactly what every young woman wants to hear when she's being proposed to. 
Sophia ends up turning Charles down for a multitude of reasons. I'm sure part of it was the mistress comment. Hopefully, another part of it was the fact that they are literally first cousins. Although, as we saw with William and Mary, marrying first cousins has never really stopped the Stuarts. And then also, probably part of it was because Sophia and her family would get nothing out of marrying Charles. He's only after her because marrying her would probably help strengthen his claim to the English throne, since Sophia has a pretty strong tie to various Dutch merchant and noble communities who could give Charles the money he needs to regain control of England. So yeah, smooth going, Charles. By the time Sophia has turned down her cousin, she's starting to get a bit of a reputation for being a beauty. She has brown hair, big brown eyes, and perfectly smooth skin, all of which are great if you're a single young princess in Europe. Unfortunately for Sophia, she isn't the only single young princess in her family. She has quite a few older sisters who are also single and also need to get married before she can even start looking for a husband. And to make matters a little bit more complicated, her family doesn't exactly have the money for dowries thanks to the whole getting cut off from the royal pension. This means that Sophia and her sisters are no longer going to be the attractive marriage partners that they once had been. Several of Sophia's sisters will never get married due to the lack of dowry and instead will spend the rest of their lives in convents while several other of them will get caught up in various relationship scandals. Not Sophia, though. And a big reason for this is because in 1648, the Thirty Years' War finally ends with the Peace of Westphalia. The Peace of Westphalia does a ton of really exciting things in terms of religious toleration, but for Sophia's story, it does one really big thing, and that is the Peace of Westphalia allows her oldest brother, Charles Louis, to get back control of a decent chunk of the Palatinate. Charles Louis now finally has a kingdom of his own, and he invites Sophia and her other siblings, who are still living in The Hague with Elizabeth, to come live in the Palatinate with him. Sophia takes him up on his offer because, hey, she's sick of living with her mother and whatever siblings she has left who aren't married or dead. To everyone's surprise, Elizabeth Stewart is like, yeah, fine, go live with your brother. You're young, YOLO. So in 1650, Sophia moves from the Hague to Heidelberg, the capital of the Palatinate. But this move doesn't start out great. When she arrives in Heidelberg, it turns out that Sophia actually can't stay in the official palace because the palace had been totally destroyed during the course of the Thirty Years' War. Funny how 30 years of fighting just destroys everything in a country. Instead, Sophia has to camp out in the mayor's house in the nearby village, which she isn't thrilled about because she's a princess, damn it, and a princess deserves a castle. However, her brother Charles Louis is really competent at getting Heidelberg and the Palatinate in general back up and running, and pretty soon Sophia is able to leave the mayor's house and move into more acceptable accommodations. For example, Charles 
within a year in 1651 is going to be able to reopen the University of Heidelberg, which is one of the oldest universities in Western Europe, which is really exciting. I think that shows, one, Charles was very good at returning the Palatinate to the pre-30 years war status quo, and two, is going to show how important education and intellectual life is within the Palatinate, something that Sophia is going to appreciate later on in life. Another thing that is going to make Sophia's introduction to the Palatinate a little bit bumpy is a smallpox outbreak that happens pretty soon after she moves into town. Sophia does end up catching smallpox, and as a result, she gets some facial scarring. Sophia is absolutely devastated by the scars that result from catching the smallpox. In her memoirs, which she writes later on when she's in her 50s, which I have to say are amazingly sassy and super fun to read, she says that the smallpox, quote, made a great breach of my beauty. But when you look at portraits of Sophia from later on in life, her skin looks perfectly fine. Maybe the smallpox wasn't so bad. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's hashtag Facetune. After recovering from the smallpox and the devastating facial scars, Sophia's life starts to look up a little bit because in 1652, when she's 22 years old, she meets Duke Ernest Augustus of Brunswick Lundberg of Kallenberg, which honestly is a mouthful, so I'm just going to call him Ernest from here on out. Duke Ernest is the youngest of the three Brunswick Lundberg brothers, so he's not exactly the greatest marriage prospect because his likelihood of inheriting land and money is pretty slim. But he's super hot, and he and Sophia massively hit it off. He's only a year older than her, they both really enjoy music, and apparently they had met as children in The Hague and had enjoyed each other's company even then. Sophia and Ernest are super into each other, and Sophia is massively tempted to start up a correspondence with Ernest after he leaves Heidelberg, but then she decides not to because it would be too scandalous. After 1652, Sophia is all alone in Heidelberg, except for her big brother and his wife. And it's not really going to go that well. Because, as it turns out, Sophia's brother's marriage isn't great. Charles is married to a woman, Charlotte of Hesse Castle. From the get-go, Charlotte feels like Charles wasn't a good enough match for her, and that he's not spending enough money on her. And Charlotte is super, super jealous. She gets pissed off whenever Charles hangs out with any woman, including his own sisters. And yes, the Stuart family can be quite scandalous, and they do love marrying first cousins, but they aren't exactly at Lannister levels of incest. That doesn't matter to Charlotte. She gets mad, and Charles gets pretty sick of her. By 1653, Charles has fallen in love with one of Charlotte's ladies-in-waiting, Louise von Degenfeldt, who is only 19 and apparently is only so-so in terms of looks, which honestly gives me a lot of hope. As I've been doing research for future study guides, 
I've noticed a trend in terms of royal mistresses. A lot of them are either not amazing beauties or don't even get the king until they're in the mid-twenties, so there's still hope for me if there are any members of royal families who are looking for a mistress. Just kidding, but not really. Pretty soon, Charles is pestering Louise to be his mistress, but Louise is good and pure and knows her history and takes a page out of Anne Boleyn's book and is like, nope, I'm not going to be your mistress. It's marriage or nothing. And Charles is like, God damn it, I'm married. But even if I can't fuck you, I can still give you nice presents. So he starts showering Louise with fancy, fancy jewels. It's all going really well until Charlotte finds some jewels that Charles gave Louise and completely freaks out. By that point, Charles has had enough. He decides that he's going to divorce Charlotte. He says that as head of the church of the Palatinate, he can just divorce Charlotte and his reason is because Charlotte is too disobedient and once he and Charlotte are divorced, he marries Louise. Yeah, that's the thing that happened. But it's unclear if the divorce was valid, so there are rumors going around about whether or not his marriage to Louise is bigamous. Eventually, the marriage goes through. No one really contests it, but Louise does have to renounce any claim on the Palatinate that her children with Charles might have, which is more than a little awkward. Also awkward, the fact that Sophia finds herself in the middle of it all because she's living with them and she is not a fan. She would very much like to remove herself from that narration a la Taylor Swift. But she can't because she's a single woman living at her brother's court and she can't exactly run away. Really, her only option to get out of this whole situation is to get married. So Sophia, being a practical young woman, starts looking for a husband. Pretty soon, Sophia has two main options. There's Adolf Johan of Zweigbuchen, the brother of the King of Sweden, and George William of Brunswick Lundberg, the big brother of Sophia's ex-boyfriend, Ernest. Adolf really quickly is super into the idea of marrying Sophia. He tells Charlotte, Charles' ex-wife, about it, and she's like, oh my gosh, yes, you should totally go for it, and convinces Charles to approve of the engagement. Charles does, with some qualms, because as it turns out, Adolf Johann is hella unsavory. He apparently had been extremely physically abusive to his first wife, who is now dead. I do think it's fair to say on Adolf's behalf that his first wife had died in childbirth and not as a direct result of any physical abuse, but still, Adolf was abusive towards her. Sophia isn't exactly thrilled with the engagement to Adolf Johann, but she's like, look, he's my only option, whatever, I can handle it. But then a knight in shining armor rides up, George William. George William needs a legitimate wife in order to get increased funds from the Kallenberg government. 
and George William would very much like those increased funds. He looks around, sees that Sophia is single and ready to mingle. She comes from a good family, and he's like, hey, do you want to get married? Okay, fine. He actually goes to Charles and starts arranging a marriage. Charles is like, yes, Sophia is technically betrothed to Adolf, but George William, if you want to marry her, I'm fine with breaking off the engagement. Sophia likes George William much more than Adolf, which really isn't surprising, so she agrees to break off her engagement and betroth herself to George William. Adolf is extremely pissed off when he finds out about the broken engagement. He throws a massive hissy fit, but there's not a lot he can do, and he ends up marrying someone else and is probably extremely abusive to her as well. But things aren't smooth sailing for Sophia just yet, because her new fiancé, George William, decides to take a little bachelor trip to Venice. While he's in Venice, he gets into a bit of trouble with a prostitute, as one does, and decides that, yeah, no, he's not so into his engagement. He ends up calling off the engagement, which is extremely devastating for Sophia. After all, Sophia is now in her mid-twenties. She doesn't really have much of a dowry. She has a terribly scarred face. No one will ever want to marry her. She's going to be stuck at her brother's court forever. But George William has a suggestion. He's like, look, my younger single brother, Ernest, could marry Sophia instead. And to sweeten the deal, he's like, look, if Ernest marries Sophia... I won't get married ever, which will mean I won't have any legitimate children, which means that when I die, Ernest and Sophia can inherit all of the family land and finally have the money and property that they deserve. This is a huge win for Ernest because, remember, he had started off as third in line for the family land, and now suddenly he's guaranteed it. And it's a huge win for Sophia because now she finally has a husband. After a little bit of negotiation, everything is sorted out. Sophia and Ernest are engaged. Everyone except for Adolf is happy. Even Sophia's mother, Elizabeth Stewart, agrees. And honestly, if you can get the mother's agreement in a historical marriage, you're already massively winning. Sophia and Ernest end up getting married on October 17th, 1658, three days after Sophia's 28th birthday. For a woman of Sophia's social position, this was relatively late to get married. I know when we think of the 1600s, we think of everyone, or at least all women, being married off by the time they're like 15 or whatever, but that wasn't really the case. If you were the average woman, say a peasant, or a member of the slowly growing middle class, you most likely would be married in your mid to late 20s, because your husband had to accrue at least enough wealth to support you, and that would take a while. However, noble women and members of royal families didn't really have to worry about that, so they were much more likely to get married much earlier. Hence, as a member of the nobility, it was pretty shocking that Sophia married at the age of 28. However, that being said, there is still hope for me as an aggressively single 25-year-old, so now, hopefully, my mother will get off my back. JK, I really don't think my mom cares about my marriage or dating 
prospects. Ernest initially wants the marriage to be a relatively low-key ceremony, but Sophia's big brother is all, I'm the elector of the Palatinate, damn it, we're going to have a crazy, over-the-top wedding. And the wedding is pretty fancy. Sure, it won't be quite as crazy as Sophia's mother's wedding, because Elizabeth Stewart's wedding is totally epic, and someday I will do a study guide on Elizabeth Stewart, and we recover her wedding in detail, but Sophia's dress is big enough that she needs four women to carry it, and it's completely covered in silver and diamonds. Not too shabby. So, let's quickly pause and recap Sophia's life up until the most exciting day thus far, her marriage. Sophia is born into exile because her parents have been kicked out of Bohemia and the Palatinate in the Thirty Years' War. Her father dies after a defeat in battle when she's only two years old. Sophia is educated and raised apart from her mother. She only rejoins her mother in The Hague when she's ten. For most of her childhood, the family is in what would be considered genteel poverty because her mother has lost her royal pension from the English government thanks to the English Civil War. However, when Sophia is 18 in 1648, the Thirty Years' War finally ends, her older brother is restored as elector to the Palatinate, and Sophia moves to the Palatinate with him. Sophia's time in the Palatinate isn't exactly great due to her brother's marital drama, and she's quickly starting to look for a husband. After two failed engagements, she gets engaged to and married to Duke Ernest Augustus of Brunswick Lundberg, the third in line to inherit Brunswick Lundberg, a duchy in Germany. So that's where we are so far. Let's look at Sophia's marriage and what's going to happen to get her second in line to the throne of England. Sophia is super into her new husband. She famously says in her memoirs that Ernest, quote, was lovable because I was determined to love him, which sounds kind of harsh, but they will have a really strong relationship. Sophia also, pretty importantly, has a very good working relationship with her mother-in-law, which may or may not be a historic first. However, she does not get along great with Ernest's older brother and her ex-fiancé, George William, which makes sense given their shared history. To make matters worse, George William keeps hitting on Sophia and saying super creepy things like how he wished he hadn't given Sophia away to Ernest, which makes both of them super annoyed. After they're married, Ernest and Sophia move to the capital of Kallenberg, the city of Hanover. Hanover is different than both Heidelberg and The Hague. It has a much stricter court protocol and is a little bit more stuck up, but Sophia handles the difference pretty well, most likely because she likes and gets along with her husband and in-laws so well, which really is a life lesson. Also, Hanover is much wealthier than either The Hague or Heidelberg at the time, so that's new and exciting. 
Sophia is no longer living in genteel poverty, although let's remember Sophia's version of poverty most likely would be considered massive excess to the vast majority of Europe's population at the time. Even though Hanover is fun and wealthy, Sophia does discuss how she misses the intellectual life of Heidelberg, and as we're going to see later on, she is going to do her best to import that intellectual life to Hanover later on. Sophia and Ernest have a very good start to their marriage. Sophia gets pregnant almost immediately after the wedding because, one, we don't really have any birth control in the 1600s, besides maybe the pulling out method, and we all know how reliable that is, and also because Sophia is super into her husband and probably doesn't mind fucking him. She gives birth to her first child, George, on May 28th, 1660. George's birth is not easy for Sophia. Her labor with him lasts over three days without any sort of painkillers, and everyone is convinced that both she and the baby are going to die. But luckily, they both survive and both end up being fine. In fact, everyone involved in George's birth is fine, except maybe for Sophia's niece, Lieselot, who is staying with Sophia at the time and watches part of the labor and is utterly traumatized. Sophia and Ernest end up having seven children who all live past childhood. Her other children are Frederick Augustus, who's born in 1661, Maximilian William, who's born in 1666, Sophia Charlotte, who's born in 1668, Charles Philip, who's born in 1669. As a fun little side note, while she's in labor with Charles Philip, Sophia literally has to stand four hours while undergoing contraction because she has to listen to her big brother, the Elector of the Palatinate, give a speech, and she wasn't able to leave said speech because it would have been rude, which honestly sounds like such a nightmare. Like, can we please put women's pain before men giving long speeches? Then she gives birth to Christian Henry in 1671, and lastly, Ernest Augustus in 1674. The fact that all of Sophia and Ernest's children survive past childhood is utterly amazing for the time period. You go, Sophia. So with these seven children, the household in Hanover is going to be pretty crowded. On top of the seven children, Charles's daughter, Lieselot, Sophia's niece, is also going to live with Sophia in Hanover for several years. Sophia keeps saying that she and Ernest have way too many kids and it's causing her so much stress, but she does love him. The reason why she's constantly complaining about having too many children is because she is genuinely afraid about providing for them if Ernest dies. Remember, Ernest's big brother, George William, is still alive. Ernest and Sophia don't really have any land and money of their own just yet. And if Ernest dies, Sophia won't have any money. It'll be really hard for her to provide for her children. Her mother had lived through that. Sophia had grown up in that situation. She probably didn't want her children to have to deal with that as well. Overall, Sophia and Ernest have a pretty happy marriage. Sure, Ernest does have a mistress and has two illegitimate children, but by the standards of the time, that's basically nothing 
So, hooray for happy 1600 marriages! Between 1664 and 1665, Sophia and Ernest decide to take a little bit of a vacation away from their growing family, and they pop down to Italy for a bit. After all, parents do need a break. Apparently, Sophia didn't love Venice, but she really enjoys Milan and Florence. She talks about it in her memoirs, which, like I've said, are very fun and very sassy. For the next decade or so, Sophia is mostly focused on raising her family, and then later on, the children of Charles. After Charles dies, she becomes the guardian of his children, especially his children with Louise. She also is busy keeping in touch with her niece, Lieselot, who by now is married to Louis XIV's younger brother and is utterly miserable because that's what happens when you marry a raging homosexual and crossdresser. As a note, Lieselot and Sophia wrote each other tons of letters. Their letters are amazing and are a really great look at life in Versailles under the court of Louis XIV, and both of them wrote memoirs, which are really fun and really sassy, and I would highly suggest reading both of them. They're weird in that, like, 1600 sort of way, but really interesting. By the 1680s, though, Sophia's life is going to start picking up because she's going to start getting involved in various European dramas. First up, 1682, when her oldest son, George, gets married. George marries a young woman named Sophia Dorothea of Sell. Sophia is not thrilled by this marriage because, as it turns out, Sophia Dorothea is the illegitimate daughter of, of Sophia's ex-fiance and Ernest's older brother, George William, and one of Sophia's closest friends, Eleanor de Olbruz. Yes, Sophia Dorothea was eventually legitimized, but Sophia is not exactly pleased with the idea of her oldest son marrying someone who was born illegitimate. Also, as a side note, he's marrying his cousin. Like, why do we keep doing this, friends? Like, inbreeding. Did we learn nothing from the Spanish Habsburgs? Clearly not. However, Sophia Dorothea of Sel is very wealthy thanks to her father, and any children that Sophia Dorothea have will inherit quite a lot of money. So marrying George makes sense. They'll be able to reunite these two threads of the Brunswick-Lundberg family and sort of reunite various family holdings. So eventually, Sophia puts aside her issues and is like, fine, whatever, marry Sophia Dorothea. George and Sophia Dorothea end up getting married on November 22nd, 1682. They will have several children, including a son who will be the future George II of England, but their relationship will be an utter hot mess involving murder and imprisonment. Sophia then gets to work marrying off her other children. Her biggest success by far is marrying off her only daughter, Sophia Charlotte, to Frederick of Brandenburg, a.k.a. the future Frederick I of Prussia. Right now, the Brandenburgs are only a middling Germanic royal family, but give it about a century and a half, and they will be conquering Central Europe. You go, Sophia. 
And then by the end of the 1680s, Sophia's having to pay attention to England. Because that's right, the glorious revolution is going down, James II is being totally incompetent, and ends up getting deposed by his daughter and nephew. And now William and Mary are the Protestant king and queen of England. In the aftermath of the Glorious Revolution, Parliament pushes this English Bill of Rights that has a little clause mentioning that only a Protestant can inherit the throne, except William and Mary don't have any children. Luckily, Mary has a little sister, Anne, who has kids, so for now, it's all good. However, due to that whole only a Protestant being able to inherit the throne clause, that means Sophia and her children get a bit of a leap in the English line of succession because they're the only other Protestant descendants of the House of Stuart. Right now, no one's really thinking about that, but... In the aftermath of the Glorious Revolution, Sophia's going to start up a correspondence with William III. It's not going to be, oh hey, I should be queen someday. It's going to be more, sup, we're both Protestants, we both grew up in the Netherlands, maybe we should be pals. And then, in 1692, Sophia and her husband are going to get their biggest win to date. Ernest becomes the first ever elector of Hanover, which is massive. Being an elector means that he gets to vote on the Holy Roman Emperor and has much more power within the conglomeration of states and duchies and principalities that make up the Holy Roman Empire. But how does Ernest become an elector? Basically, he had allied with Leopold I, the Holy Roman Emperor, in a war against the Ottoman Empire. This war didn't go great for Ernest or Sophia because two of their children did die in the conflict, but once the war is done, Leopold rewards Ernest by making him an elector. Part of the making Ernest an elector was as a thanks for fighting the Ottomans, but also part of it was for purely political reasons. Leopold wants to weaken growing French power in various areas of the empire, such as in the Palatinate, Cologne, and Munich, as well as counter the rising powers of Saxony and Prussia. But for whatever reason that Leopold gave Ernest the promotion, he's now the elector of Hanover. He's no longer just Ernest of Kallenberg, he is Ernest of Hanover, and now we can officially call Sophia, Sophia of Hanover. Now that they're elector and electress of Hanover, Sophia and Ernest are really going to get down to business and make Hanover a cultural and intellectual center. They're both going to be very focused on completely renovating Hanover's main historic palace, the Herrenhausen. They're mostly going to focus on the gardens, which I personally think is interesting because the later Hanover kings of England will be all about that landscaping. Sophia is also going to really focus on intellectualism. She's going to become BFFs with this guy, Gottfried Leibniz. Gottfried Leibniz really does deserve a study guide all of his own, and I hope someday to do one. But let's quickly just do a summary of who he is. 
Leibniz is a major German mathematician and philosopher and one of the big power players of the scientific revolution. He is, to be honest, a genius. He finished his undergraduate degree in philosophy when he was fucking 15 years old, and by the time he's 17, he has a law degree. Leibniz may or may not have developed both integral and differential calculus on his own, for which I say, thanks Leibniz, I just love taking calculus in high school. And whether or not Leibniz did develop calculus on his own is up for debate. He ends up having a huge rivalry with Isaac Newton over this, because Isaac Newton claims that Leibniz stole the ideas of what would be calculus from some unpublished books of his, whereas Leibniz says, no, I did it all on my own, Newton's just jealous and is trying to make me look bad. I say it doesn't really matter, both of them were really smart, why are we pitting strong women in science against each other? Even if Leibniz didn't develop calculus all on his own, he developed what eventually became the binary code, which is super cool. And Sophia ends up making him the librarian for the court of Hanover. And the two become very close friends and write a ton of letters to each other. In these letters, we're able to see that Sophia of Hanover was able to keep up with Leibniz, which is hella impressive. Like, you go, Sophia. In addition to hanging out with Leibniz, Sophia was a fan of various other contemporary philosophers, such as Rene Descartes, who was very close friends with her older sister, Elizabeth, and Baruch Spinoza. Sadly for Sophia, Ernest isn't going to have that much time to enjoy being the Duke of Hanover. In 1694, he gets sick. Ernest starts getting sick right when George and Sophia Dorothea start having their nasty and murderous falling out. So a bunch of people say that Ernest's sickness is punishment for that, which, eh, that's not really how germ theory works, my friends. Ernest never fully recovers, and Sophia is going to spend most of the next few years caring for Ernest, although she does take a small break from the sickbed to meet Tsar Peter I comes to visit Hanover on his western tour to modernize Russia. Ernest of Hanover ended up dying on February 3rd, 1698. Sophia obviously is heartbroken at her husband's death, but she says that if she were going to die of grief, she would have died a long time ago. Even though Ernest is dead, Sophia does not have to give up her title of Sophia of Hanover or Duchess of Hanover, which is really nice, but it doesn't really matter because she's going to get a better title soon. In 1700, she's going to get a massive jump up in the English line of succession and become the heir presumptive to the throne of England. How does that happen? Well, in 1700, Princess Anne, who is second in line to the throne's only son, dies. This causes a bit of a succession crisis in England because the current king, William, has no children and Anne, next in line to the throne, also has no children. Technically, after Anne, by bloodline, the throne should go to her half-brother, James II of England and Mary of Modena's son, James Edward Stuart, but he is Catholic 
and living in exile in France, so Parliament really doesn't want that to happen. In 1701, Parliament passes the Act of Settlement, and the Act of Settlement says that the throne of England has to go to a Protestant. This means Parliament has to go back through the Stuart family tree to find the nearest Protestant relationship. They have to go all the way back to Elizabeth Stuart, and of all of Elizabeth Stuart's children, only Sophia of Hanover ha is Protestant, even though Elizabeth, even though Sophia of Hanover is the most junior member of the Stuart family, she's the only Protestant. She's the only option. So she's chosen as heiress presumptive over everyone else. In the midst of all this drama, Sophia goes to meet with William III of England at the Dutch city of Lou in 1700. The two chat about the whole situation and how I, and how unideal it is, but how it's going to happen no matter what, because William isn't going to get remarried, so it looks like after Anne dies, Sophia is queen. Sophia's BFF, Leibniz, is absolutely thrilled. He thinks the idea of Sophia becoming queen of England is genius, and he's going to work really hard behind the scenes to make sure that this succession happens, and he ends up being successful. In 1702, William III dies, and Anne becomes queen. Anne and Sophia do not get along at all. Sophia wants to move to England with George so that they can learn more about the country that they will be ruling someday, and so that they can take over immediately if Anne dies unexpectedly. Anne says no. She does not let Sophia and George move to England because she is absolutely terrified of having a rival court that might become more popular than her. She also refuses to give Sophia and George the normal allowance that heirs to the throne of England would receive. Sophia isn't exactly thrilled, but there's not exactly a lot she can do. So she's going to spend the next decade or so waiting in the wings in Hanover dealing with various family marriages and drama while waiting for Anne to die. For the next decade, Sophia's main goal in life is going to be becoming the Queen of England. However, Sophia is never going to achieve it. She dies on June 8, 1714, of a stroke after taking a walk in the garden. Sophia of Hanover is 83 at the time of her death, and shockingly, she is buried in Hanover. Queen Anne ends up dying just under two months later, on August 1st, 1714, which means that Sophia's son, George, becomes king instead, becoming King George I of England, the first member of the House of Hanover. Through her son, George, Sophia is the direct ancestor of the current royal families of England, Spain, Sweden, Norway, as well as the direct ancestor of the last king of Germany and the last czar of Russia. So, let's recap Sophia's life. Like I said, Sophia's childhood and early adulthood was a little bit messy. She bounced between Leiden, The Hague, and Heidelberg before getting married to her husband, Duke Ernest of Brunswick Lundberg. Ernest and Sophia had a happy marriage. They had seven children, all of whom survived adulthood although her oldest son, George, would cause more than a few headaches given his more than unhappy marriage to his cousin, Sophia Dorothea of Sel. 
Sophia spends most of her early married life dealing with raising a family and marrying off her children to ensure that they never have to deal with the poverty, the genteel poverty that she did. Her fortunes start changing in the 1680s thanks to the Glorious Revolution, which moves her up in the line of succession in England, and in 1692 when her husband becomes the Elector of Hanover. Together, Sophia and Ernest, with the assist of Gottfried Leibniz, are going to turn Hanover into a cultural center. After Ernest dies in 1698, Sophia is going to be alone, but in 1700, after the death of Anne's last child, Sophia is going to be next in line to the English throne, thanks to the 1701 Act of Settlement. Sophia very nearly becomes the Queen of England. She dies less than two months before Queen Anne does, which means that while Sophia never becomes Queen of England, her oldest son, George, does kick off the House of Hanover. So that's it for the study guides on the Stuarts. Don't worry, there's not going to be a test. I'm not that mean. The next series of study guides aren't going to be about royalty. I need to take a little bit of a break from all the inbreeding and backstabbing. Instead, I'm going to be jumping forward about a hundred years and moving into the more literary sphere by talking about the English romantic poets. Yes, there won't be any thrones or horse racing, or political revolution. Actually, no, there will be political revolution, and there still will be quite a bit of incest and drama and poor life choices. I'm really excited to cover the English Romantic Poets. As always, you can find the podcast on social media, at Twitter, at sadgirlstudypod, on Instagram, at sadgirlstudy. There's the Patreon, at patreon.com slash Sad Girl Study Guides. Remember, if you subscribe at the $5 a month level or above, you get access to the bi-monthly tangent casts where I talk about people, places, or things that didn't quite make the final cut of the study guides. As always, the best way to help the podcast grow is to subscribe or tell a friend. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and, and Spotify. And as always, Please let me know how I'm doing and rate and review or else I'll be sad. Thank you.